This is our fourth tape in a series that I've done entitled Lessons from David. And in the three previous tapes, I basically was talking about very positive things concerning David, how he was a man after God's own heart, how he operated in faith, he overcame criticism even of his own family, how he had proven God in the small things, and that's the reason he was able to slay Goliath. We contrasted David from his predecessor, Saul, and his uh, son, Absalom, who tried to take over the kingdom but was uh, defeated in his attempt and died in that attempt. And we've contrasted them. And so basically in the three previous tapes, we've been talking about all the positive things involved in David's life. And David was a great man. As I've already pointed out, he wrote, I believe, about 70 psalms, 60 to 70 psalms. And there were about 60 to 70 chapters of the Bible that were written about him. I think that's a total of 138 chapters that he either wrote or were written about David. When you consider all of the times he was quoted, even by Jesus in the New Testament, uh, references and things, this makes David one of the major players in the entire Bible and certainly a person that we've got a lot to learn from. There were many great things. But today we're going to come to David's great downfall his sin and transgression against God. And I tell you, there's just as much that we can learn through the negative things in David's life as we can from the positive things that he went through. And, you know, it's amazing to me how that the Bible is very candid. And even the major characters of the Bible, it doesn't gloss over their failures. But instead, it very plainly tells you, like, for instance, Moses is a man who actually murdered a person thinking that he was bringing God's will to pass. Moses got angry and lost his temper, and because of it, he was kept out of the promised land. You could go through and talk about Abraham. It talks about Abraham's inability to have children, and because of this, he was swayed by his wife and went into his handmaiden, Hagar. And you just go on through, and the Bible reveals the weaknesses and the failings in people, and there's a number of purposes for this. One of them is is to show you that God's never had anybody qualified working for him yet. It's to encourage us that you don't have to be perfect. You can recover from mistakes and from sins in your life and that God can still use you, and that is so obvious if you really think about it. And yet it's amazing to me that the vast majority of Christianity still doesn't embrace that attitude. They think that ministers basically have to be perfect, and that if you make any mistakes and stuff that you've disqualified yourself. And, you know, you just can't see that in Scripture. And it teaches us about the grace of God, how that God uses us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. As it says over in First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, I've already used these passages of Scripture. There's twice in verse 6 and verse 11. It says, all of these things that happened in the Old Testament happened unto them for our examples so that we through that could learn not to lust, not to murmur, not to complain, not to do all of these things. So we're going to learn some things here from the life of David that I think are going to be very beneficial to you. If you've already been through a major failure, a major moral failure in your life, there's going to be some things here that are going to tremendously help you to be able to recover and see the way that God dealt with David and the way that God was able to still use him. If you haven't been through a major moral failure, then you know what? You can take a lot 
of instruction from the life of David. And through this, you can see how dearly this cost him, how much it hurt him and hurt other people. And this ought to inspire you not to go that route. So wherever you are, there are some wonderful things here that we can learn from this example of where David fell into sin with Bathsheba. This is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabab. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Now, as we start talking about his sin with Bathsheba, let me just say that sin like this, moral failure, I mean, not where you just make a mistake, where you, because you're human, fail to do something that you should do. But I'm talking about a moral failure where you just literally turn and go the other direction. It is a rebellion towards God. And I don't think there's any other way that you could class this. Matter of fact, the Lord said that over in chapter 12. We'll be getting to that. For you to have a major departure from God the way that David did here, it doesn't happen accidentally. There are reasons why this happens. Sin has to be conceived. That's the terminology that's used in James chapter 1. In the same way that a baby has to be conceived. The stork doesn't bring it. You don't get pregnant by drinking the water after someone else. It's not something that you catch from a person like a cold or a virus. You have to plant that seed. Well, in the same way, there are reasons why people conceive these sins. It has to be conceived. And there are reasons why David fell into this moral failure. David started out with a pure heart, a heart that was after God himself. And David remained faithful through all the hardships, through all of these things. I mean, when he was being pursued by his father-in-law, the previous king, Saul, he remained faithful. He refused to be influenced by the ungodly counsel around him. He stayed sensitive to God throughout all of his hardships and battles where he was overwhelmed at times and and uh, fought overwhelming odds and went out against Goliath did all of these things he remained faithful his faith was stayed upon the Lord and there are just so many positive things about David and yet here he is having a major moral failure and I mean just uh, it's like he didn't even know the Lord it's just uh, really totally contrary to the way his heart was his whole life this is just like an anomaly in his life. It didn't happen accidentally. There were reasons why it happened. And I think that this first verse here in chapter 11 begins to give us a clue. It says here, it says at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Amnon and besieged Rabab. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Here's one thing. This is a little bit subtle in this verse, but I really believe this and I believe it to be true. David was anointed by God to be king, and part of the job of the king was to be the commander-in-chief, the general over all of the armies, to run the battles. It was time when kings were going out to battle. David was the king. He should have been going out to battle with his troops, but instead he sent Joab, the uh, commander, the general over all of his troops, and he stayed in Jerusalem. And this right here, see, begins to give a little bit of insight into why he had this moral failure. And it's because he wasn't doing what he was called to do. He had lost his vision. Let me say some things here that um, 
Some of you may have a hard time recognizing and embracing this, but I really believe it to be true. But you know what? When you are under pressure, when it looks like your goal is nearly unobtainable, it is so far-fetched, it is so far from being where you are, it creates a hunger on the inside of you to have that goal obtained, that it keeps you focused. It keeps you focused on the things of God. It keeps you intent. It keeps an energy, an enthusiasm going on the inside of you when you have a goal out in front of you. But you know what? When you begin to obtain your goal, that is a dangerous time because you no longer have this purpose. As I was talking on the last tape that I made in this series, one of the things about David that made him such a great man was that he had a purpose that was bigger than himself. He served a uh, higher purpose. He wasn't in it for himself. And he had this goal of liberating God's people, bringing the nation of Israel to a prominence and to the place that God intended and being God's minister, actually, to the people. And as long as he had that goal out in front of him and he was occupied with it, did you know one of the best defenses against temptation is just being focused on what God called you to do, being occupied, being about your father's business, doing things like that. It is a very beneficial thing to have a purpose and a goal that consumes your energy and your attention. When you get bored, that's when you open yourself up to a lot of things from the devil. You know, there's this saying that some people claim to be in the Bible. It's not, but I believe it's a scriptural principle about that idleness is the devil's workshop. Many of us grew up hearing that, and I don't think it is in Scripture. I've never run across it, but it is a godly principle that, you know what, you need to be doing something. You need to have a purpose, a goal in your life. And this first verse of the 11th chapter is saying that David had quit doing what God called him to do. Now, I'm reading between the lines, but I believe that the reason he had quit doing it was because he had won so many victories The kingdom was now established. He had prospered so much. And prior to this period of time, David had even wanted to build a temple. The prophets, you know, told him that, well, yes, go ahead. And then that night the Lord spoke to this prophet and said, no, you can't do it. Your son's going to do it. And the Lord gave David prophecies about how his kingdom would endure and he would always have a son sitting on the throne. I mean, tremendous prophecies. What all of this did, it just brought David to like the pinnacle. It brought him to the apex, to where he was at the top of the game. Everything he had wanted for the nation, for himself, for his heirs, for all of these things, it was all being done. In other words, he had reached his goal. He had fulfilled what he set out to do. And now he was so prosperous that he could send his armies to battle without him. It was just a minor skirmish. It wasn't a major thing. It wasn't really a chance of Israel losing in this battle. They had the superior power. It was going to happen, and so David didn't have to go. He didn't have to do what God told him to do. And when the pressure was off, David let up. He quit seeking God with the same intensity. He wasn't doing what God told him to do. And basically, David was just bored. I believe that you can see that in the second verse. It says here that it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. 
Now notice it says that in the even tide, David rose up from his bed and walked out on the roof of his house. Did you know David was getting out of bed when most people who have worked and have a purpose and a and a job that they have to do, they were just getting off of work and going to bed. In other words, for David to be getting up at even time means that he wasn't doing anything. He wasn't overwhelmed with the affairs of state. He was sleeping, napping during the day. He didn't have much to do. He had reached his goal. And you know what? This is dangerous. And let me make a statement here that some people may not agree with at first. This is contrary to conventional wisdom, but I believe that this is absolutely true. And that is that the most dangerous time in any person's life is not when they are under tremendous pressure, but rather it's when all pressure is removed. They are in a realm of prosperity. When everything is going so good, that is when you are your most vulnerable to the devil. Now, I know that that's contrary to conventional wisdom because basically most people, especially Christians, say that it's in hardship and bad times, that that's really when you find out what a person's like, and that's really when you uh, find out, you know, if a person has character and things. I'm not saying that it doesn't take character and faith to be able to persevere through hard times. I believe it does. But I believe it's even more deadly. It's even more dangerous. The temptation is worse during prosperity than it is during hardship. And the reason for that being that in hardship, when you are facing something that is just overwhelming you, it amplifies and shows you that you're incapable. You can't deal with this. This is bigger than you. And even a person with a low commitment to the Lord will run to the Lord in hardship and ask God for help and seek God and be God-dependent. I mean, just look at your own life. When is it that you pray the most? If you're typical, if you're average, then I can guarantee you the vast majority of people pray the most when they are in trouble. Trouble drives people to God. Anybody who knows that God exists and that God wants to help us will turn to God when they are under pressure. But you know what is the more deadly is when all the pressure is removed, when everything's going so good that you can send your own generals to fight the battle. You don't have to do it anymore. And you are just so blessed and prosperous. you got the greatest mansion in all of the land and all of these things. And no longer do you have to seek God. You don't have Saul breathing down your neck and where, you know, every day you're having somebody trying to kill you and stuff like this. And so David just let up. He began to coast. He wasn't seeking God with the same intensity. And you know what? I believe that that is what caused him to enter in to this sin with Bathsheba. Again, sin. I mean, major sins. Not talking about just a mistake, a failure in some way, but a major sin where you just depart from God doesn't happen accidentally. It's something that comes as a result of choices. It has to be conceived over a period of time. David's sin with Bathsheba did not really happen when he saw Bathsheba and then had her come in and committed adultery with her. But it began months or possibly years before when David began to start being so blessed and so prosperous that he didn't have to seek the Lord with the same intensity, and he just began to let his spiritual life fail. He probably got occupied with the affairs of being king, and before you knew it, 
It had been a long time since he was in relationship with God, intimacy the way that he had been, and that really is what caused this moral failure. Now, the reason I say this is as a warning to any of us that haven't entered into something like this, that you know what, David was a man after God's own heart, and yet, look at what he did. He committed adultery and even murdered the husband of Bathsheba to try and cover up his adultery. I mean, how far can you go? This was a man who loved God with all of his heart, and yet here he is living in a way that even Saul never did anything like this. There's a lot of people in the Word of God who were not considered to be great examples who didn't live as bad a life as what David did. How could you do something like that? It just shows that the human heart is capable of doing anything that anybody has ever done if you just let it go. You cannot coast. It's like an airplane. You know, you can get up there and you can be flying and it seems so effortless, but you know what? You turn off those motors and I guarantee you gravity is still pulling and it never quits And if you think that because you have flown so long without any effort and everything's working fine, you just turn off those engines and see what happens, you're going to come down. It will happen. And it's the same thing in the Christian life. You don't ever get to a place where you don't have to seek God and be hungry for God and dependent upon God and just, I mean, waiting on God, looking to Him for everything. And if you ever think that you do, if you've become so prosperous that you aren't seeking God, then you are putting yourself in the worst situation that you ever could. And you are capable of doing anything. This ought to be a warning to you. And so instead of waiting until you have this great temptation, until you have some crisis hit you, you need to learn to seek the Lord right now and keep your heart sensitive to God. And if you'll do that, you'll find out that you cannot wickedly depart from God unless you first of all started departing in this dependency upon God. If you would just keep yourself in a situation where day by day you recognize, God, without you I can do nothing. Lord, I need you every day of my life, not only when crisis is hitting, but if everything is going good in my life, if we are prospering more than ever before, God, I need you now just as much as I ever have in my life. And if you maintain that attitude, it'll keep you from the great transgression. Man, that is one powerful truth. That is a tremendous truth. Matter of fact, let me use a passage of Scripture. This is what David wrote. In Psalms chapter 19, verse 13, it says, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. And if you look this word presumptuous up in the Hebrew, it's literally talking about sins of pride or arrogancy. Now, you could define pride in a lot of different ways, but I believe one of the ways that you can define pride is just self-sufficiency to where you are no longer humbly recognizing your dependence upon God, but you're just, you think everything's so good, you have done all of these things by your great might and by your power. You just aren't recognizing our frailty, and that we need God in our life at all times. So it says, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins, or these sins of arrogance, sins of independence, where we are just operating independent of you. And it says, Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. 
This is David speaking, the same one that we're reading about. And he says, if you will keep me from these sins of arrogance, these sins of being independent from you, thinking that I can make it on my own, if you keep me in a situation where I am dependent and recognize my dependency, that will keep me from the great transgression. In other words, you have to sin in these small areas in not seeking the Lord, not being dependent upon God. You have to sin in becoming arrogant, self-sufficient, not seeking the Lord, not having intimacy with him before you can enter into a great transgression. David didn't just have this sin of adultery and murder come on him. It had been coming on for months or for years as he began to be so prosperous, he didn't have to depend upon the Lord. He didn't have to seek the Lord the way that he once did. And that's where his sin was conceived. And then Bathsheba and Uriah just happened to be the way it manifested itself. You know, I've got a three-tape album entitled How to Prepare Your Heart that is dealing with this one thing. It's four and a half hours worth of teaching explaining this principle that I'm talking about, and it would really be good for you to get that. It will explain why people do evil, that it doesn't just happen, it's a process, and how you can keep yourself from entering into that process if you'll just keep yourself dependent upon God. If you'll keep yourself humbly dependent upon God, it'll make all the difference. So David was just basically so blessed, so prospered, he didn't have to do what God told him to do. He wasn't obeying God. He was at home sleeping during the day, goofing off, didn't have a purpose, aimless. He was looking for trouble, and he found it. You know what? If you get up off of your bed in the evening time when you should be going to bed, but instead you've been sleeping all day, you get up, you start carousing at night, and you know what? You're going to run into trouble. And David found it. David saw Bathsheba washing herself. And so in verse 3, it says, David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her and he came in. She came in unto him and he lay with her for she was purified from her uncleanness and she returned unto her house. It says in verse 5 that the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. And so rather than read all of this, I'm going to summarize it. But David, when he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, of course, this was going to really look bad for him. His sin was going to be found out rather than humbling himself right then and dealing with it. This just shows you how hardened his heart had become towards God. I mean, I can't imagine doing what he did, but if I could imagine it, I think that by the time that I found out that the woman got pregnant, man, I'd just feel like, oh, God, you know, and I would deal with it right then. I wouldn't have gone any further. But no, David, he didn't skip a beat. He called for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who was a soldier out fighting the battles that David was supposed to be fighting. He called for Uriah to come back home, and he... uh, you know, acted like he was interested in the battle and what was going on. So he had Uriah give him a report, and then he released him, and he expected Uriah to go home and have sexual relationships with Bathsheba. And he sent some food down there to bless him and all this. Well, it turned out that Uriah didn't go home. Instead, he stayed on the steps of the king's house. The king was told about it in the morning, so he called Uriah in and inquired, and he says, why didn't you go home? 
And Uriah says, what am I going to do? Go home and have relations with my wife while my comrades are out there in battle and they're sleeping on the ground and they're putting their life on the line. He says, man, I'm not going to do it. David saw that his plan didn't work. So what he did was have Uriah stay over some more. He had a feast. He called Uriah to the feast and made him drink until he got drunk, thinking that surely this man's resolve is going to crack when he gets drunk. But instead, when the feast was over, Uriah, even though he was drunk, he still made the decision to stay there at the steps of David's uh, palace. He refused to go home. And so David saw that it just wasn't going to work to uh, have Uriah and Bathsheba get together. And so instead, he wrote a letter and told Joab, the general, to put Uriah in a place where he knew it was dangerous and then withdraw from him so that he would be killed. And he even sent this letter by the hand of Uriah. Now, I'm sure that the letter had some kind of a seal on it as protection, but also David had seen that Uriah was a man of such integrity, such high standards, that he probably didn't have any doubt that Uriah would never look into this letter somehow or another, try and break the seal and get around it. He sent Uriah's own death sentence by his hand. You know, the irony of that, the hypocrisy of that, the evilness of that is just amazing. It's amazing how David could stoop so low. And then Joab cooperated. You know, David not only did this on his own, but he had to involve servants in this sin with Bathsheba. He sent servants out to get Bathsheba. Then he had his general comply with it and basically kill Uriah. He involved other people in his sin. I've had lots of people say, well, I'm not hurting anybody but myself by the things they do, and that's just never true. I guarantee you somebody else is always hurt by our sin, by the things that we do. David involved a number of people in this, and I guarantee you his iniquity was spread around among them. And so Joab the general did this. Uriah was killed. The word came back. And David, when he heard that Uriah had been killed, he sent and took Bathsheba and uh, made her his wife. But look in the last verse of this 11th chapter of Second Samuel. It says, verse 27, And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What an understatement. So in the 12th chapter, we have Nathan the prophet, who had been a friend of David and an advisor, a prophet for a long time. He came to David, and he gave David this parable in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. 
and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, of course, this was a parable that Nathan was giving. It was not a real occurrence, but rather he was making a parable and it was all symbolic about what David had done. David was like the rich man who had everything. God had blessed him and given him everything. And yet when he had a need, instead of going to what God had prospered him and blessed him with, David had multiple wives. In the uh, third chapter of Second Samuel, we read where David took six wives right there. He already had Michael, who had been taken away from him, but she had been his wife, and he got her back. So that's seven wives. Later, we see Bathsheba became his wife. That's eight wives right there. And I believe that there were other wives. I'm just not totally up on all that. But at least eight wives David had. And instead of drawing and satisfying his sexual desires by the wives that he had, which were all legal by law that God had given him, he went and took a man, Uriah's wife, while he was away fighting David's battle, serving David, and he took that man's wife and then killed the man to be able to try and cover up his sin. And this is what that parable was all about. And David just got furious. He says the man that has done this thing is going to die and he's going to have to make restitution for this lamb that he took fourfold. In other words, he'll have to give that poor man four animals for the one that he took. Look at this passage of Scripture in James chapter 2. In verse 12, it says, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. In other words, the Lord here is saying that he delights in showing mercy to people who have shown mercy. But people who have shown no mercy, who have been critical, judgmental, they reap what they sow. And did you know David knew this principle? Because if you'll turn over to Second Samuel chapter 22, this is a psalm that was written, and I believe it was written before David's sin with Bathsheba because in here he talks about that he was pure. He had never wickedly departed from the Lord. He had never done any of these things. He had remained righteous. And I believe that that's him Writing this psalm, even though it's listed later in the chronology of Second Samuel, it was really written before his sin with Bathsheba. The context shows that. And in verse 22 of this chapter, Second Samuel 22, 22, he says, For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I believe that that's indicating that this was prior to his sin with Bathsheba. And look what he said in the 26th verse. This is also written in Psalms 18. It's the same psalm if you compare them together. But in 2 Samuel 22:26, it says, With the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful, and with the upright man thou wilt show thyself upright. So here's David saying basically the same thing that was said in James chapter 2 about God has judgment without mercy on those who have shown no mercy. He's saying here, with merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the upright, you will show yourself upright. So the reason I'm bringing all this out is to say that David had at one time had this principle revealed to him. David knew that if he wanted mercy, he had to show mercy. If he didn't show mercy to other people, he would receive no mercy. And yet David had departed from God. He had quit seeking God. He had allowed himself to be drawn into adultery 
and to commit murder trying to cover up his adultery, and he was just going on as if nothing had happened. His heart had become so hardened that he had quit being responsive to the things that God had shown him. And right here when this parable came to him and he heard this story about a man who did something that was really much less of a transgression than what David did. Just taking a man's lamb and killing it to feed somebody who came to visit you is not near as great a transgression as taking another person's wife and then murdering the husband trying to cover up your adultery. David was the one who was in the greater transgression. Listen to this. This is something I think that could really make an impact in your life. I believe that David basically determined his own judgment. God gave David a parable through Nathan the prophet. And if David would have shown mercy and have said, well, you know, this man's done wrong. I'm going to make him make restitution, but I'm going to give mercy to this man. Maybe there's a way to redeem this man. Maybe his heart was right. Instead of going any further, finding out any other details, he just jumped to judgment. He said, this man will die and He is going to suffer four times the punishment, the suffering that he's caused. And you know what? Mercy rejoices against judgment. If you don't show mercy, you won't reap it. I believe that God basically gave this parable to David to see how David would respond. Would David be merciful towards a man in this parable? If he would have, then I believe God would have been merciful to David in the way that he dealt with this transgression. But when David showed no mercy then you know what? It basically meant that God was going to show no mercy. God responded to David the way that David was responding to other people. And the harshness of this judgment that came on David, I believe, was determined by himself. Man, that's a radical statement. Do you know what? If we would be merciful to other people, we ourselves would receive mercy. Well, I've seen that. I've done some things. They were stupid. But you know what? I have been merciful to other people and I've been able to reap mercy. God's been gracious to me when I say things and hurt people's feelings and do things. You know what? God has been merciful to me because I've been merciful to other people. Again, I can remember a media ministry who just was vicious and condemning anybody and everybody. And then when he fell, guess what? I mean, he received it back fourfold, the judgment that he had put on other people. Boy, people were merciless with him, and it's just destroyed his ministry. I believe if he would have been more merciful to people, have shown a little bit of compassion, he might have reaped more compassion. Boy, this is a great principle that we need to learn in our life. If you want God to be merciful to you, you need to be merciful to somebody else. Man, if you're going to rail on other people when they make a mistake, expect that you are going to be railed upon when you make a mistake. I think all of us have seen this. Everybody listening to this tape, I'm sure, has seen somebody who is just so judgmental, Mr. and Mrs. Perfect, and they tried to make everybody else be perfect, and if they weren't, they criticized. And then they themselves fail. They come into some mistake, and it's like somehow or another you get this feeling of justice. It's payback. It's vengeance. They've condemned me. They've condemned everybody else. And you just love to see that person receive what they deserve. But you know what? When a person is merciful, you uh, want to extend mercy to them. It's his principle. And I believe that David brought this judgment upon himself by being so strict in his criticism of this man in the parable. And so in verse 7, Nathan the prophet said to David, You are the man. 
This really wasn't a parable about a rich man and his poor neighbor and taking his lamb from him. This was about David and Bathsheba and Uriah. So Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom. And I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Boy, now this is an amazing statement. In other words, the Lord is saying, David, look what you've done. Man, I have blessed you. I have prospered you. I've done all of these things. And if I hadn't have given you enough, I'd have given you more. In other words, if you weren't satisfied, I'm not against you having more. He says, I'd have given you more wives. I'd have given you more money. I'd have given you more fame. I'd have given you more of anything. The real sin here isn't just David's sin with Bathsheba and the sin of killing Uriah, but the sin was that he quit trusting in God. He quit looking to God as his source. At one time, David couldn't do anything. He was a poor man. He was a nobody, and he had to be God-dependent. But now he had become king, and he was powerful. He was uh, the head of one of the most powerful nations on the face of the earth at the time. He could do anything he wanted to, and he quit trusting God as his supply. He started just doing things because he could do it, because he was king, and he could do whatever he wanted to. Boy, there's a danger here for us. Now, when you prosper to such a degree that you no longer have to pray and have God provide things for you, but you can just go out and get anything on your own, there's a danger here that you will quit depending upon God. And that's really the transgression. And that's what the Lord's bringing out. He's saying, I'd have given unto you more if you would have asked me. And then in verse 9, he says, Wherefore have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be thy wife, and has slain him with the sword of the children of Amnon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Well, these are some of the most powerful scriptures in the entire word of God to me. The Lord has spoken some things to me here that have just impacted my life tremendously, and You're going to have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to get this because most people just don't think this way. And yet I believe it's the proper way to think. That's what the Lord is saying here. Notice the way that he reproved David. He didn't say, David, look what you've done to Bathsheba. Look how you've defiled her. Look what you've done to Uriah and how you've killed him and done all of these things. Look at all of the people that you've offended. That's not what the Lord said. You know what it was all came down to? He says, David, look what I've done for you. And I'd have given you more if you would have trusted me. And then in verse 10, he says, all of these things are going to happen because you have despised me. He didn't talk about you despise Bathsheba. You despise Uriah. You despise my commandments. And he says, you have despised me. It was all about his personal relationship with God. And that's the way that the Lord reproved him. Now, here's something that you've got to let the Holy Spirit help you to get hold of this, or you can miss this. Most people think of sin in terms of the damage you do to other people. For instance, when it comes to stealing, most people think that stealing is wrong because it damages the person that you've stolen from. You've violated them. And because they look at it only in these external terms, 
Well, then many people justify certain types of theft. Like, for instance, your employer. There's a lot of people, a lot of Christian people who go to work, but they will take, you know, pins. They will take small things. They will steal a little bit of time. They think, well, the employer, you know, he's got this big business. They can afford it. They will uh, doctor their timesheets. They will lie a little bit. But see, they don't feel bad about it because they're thinking of sin, stealing, only in the terms of what damage is it doing. For instance, I've heard some stories about big corporations that, you know, they allow for certain amount of thievery. They allow for certain amount of things, and it's just written off. They have insurance to cover fraud and different things like this. And so there's a lot of people, white-collar crime, that actually think, I'm not doing anybody any damage. This big corporation wouldn't even miss $100,000. They got insurance to cover it. And so they think about it in those terms. But what they're missing is, first of all, that's not the right way to think about it, but All of that aside, what they're missing is whether the company has insurance to cover it, whether they can get by, whether they've made allowances for a certain amount of shoplifting and different things like this. The thing you're missing is you are sinning against God. It doesn't matter whether the company needs it or can get by without it or not. The problem is you, instead of trusting God and letting God supply things for you in an honest way, in a way of integrity, You are doing it your way. You are going against God. You aren't trusting God. And that's the heart of the sin. The heart of the sin is really unbelief. You aren't trusting God. I wish I had time to teach on this, but I do have a three-tape album. I've got a three-tape album for nearly everything I know. But I've got a three-tape album entitled The Positive Ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's taken from John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And it says there that the Holy Spirit reproves us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Most people believe that means that he reproves us of the sin of like adultery, stealing, lying, dope addiction or whatever. And then he'll tell us that we're unrighteous because we did that. And if we don't repent, we're going to be judged. But that's not what that's saying. Matter of fact, God knew that it was going to be misinterpreted, so he explained it in verses 9 through 11. He says the sin he reproves of is the sin of not believing on Jesus. And then he doesn't convict us of unrighteousness, but rather, in verse 10, it says he will convict us that we are righteous. And then verse 11 says he will not convict us that we are going to be judged, but rather he'll talk about the judgment of the devil. Again, I I really stress this tape set entitled The Positive Ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is a powerful teaching. It would really bless you. But here's what I'm trying to get at. The bottom line, the root of all sin is just the fact that we aren't trusting God. That's really what's wrong with stealing. You aren't trusting God. And if you define it only in the terms of, well, I didn't hurt anybody, they'll never miss it. Well, then you know what? You've missed the fact that it doesn't matter if the person, the corporation ever misses it or not. God is missing you depending upon him. You are going about obtaining your needs in an ungodly fashion, a fashion that is contrary to his instruction. And that's the transgression against God. That's what's really wrong with adultery. You know, many people, the church has even fallen into this where they reason against sin based on the physical consequences. They'll talk about if you go out and commit adultery, man, you're exposing yourself to sexually transmitted diseases. And with the AIDS epidemic and all of the things that we're facing today, you are just playing Russian roulette. And they will try and argue 
for purity, sexual purity, on the basis of just physical consequences that could come. Now, those things exist. And if that's all the reasoning that you had, that would be a good enough reason to remain sexually pure is because that's stupid to go out and do that. But you know what? It's really the wrong reasoning. Because look at it this way. What would happen if uh, medicine was able to come up with a cure for all sexually transmitted diseases? What if AIDS was obliterated? Would that all of a sudden make sexual promiscuity okay? Well, of course it wouldn't. But see, if you use logic like that to reason with people why you shouldn't live in sexual immorality, well, then they're able to excuse it and say, well, I'm using protection, you know, I'm, I'm uh, having protected sex and, you know, all of these other things. And so they, they explain it away. But the real root of that sin is you aren't trusting God. God gave you a mate, and he said to be ravished with your wife's love at all times. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiles, what it said in Hebrews chapter 12. In other words, God will allow you to satisfy your sexual desires with the partner that he gave you. And God ordained that there be one woman for one man for life. Now, because of certain things, there's exceptions to that, but that was God's original plan. It's shown in the fact that he made Adam and Eve and not Adam and Eve and Sue and Peggy and all of these others. He didn't give Adam multiple wives. There was one woman for one man. This is what's wrong with homosexuality. People say, well, you know, you could get all of these diseases. The uh, the suicide rate among homosexuals is the highest of any uh, segment, group of people in our society. You could reason from all of these, you know, consequences and you could use that to try and talk people against it. But the real root of what's wrong with homosexuality is that it's a person rejecting God's judgment. God made them Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And so you're just saying, well, I don't care what God did. I don't care what his will is. Here's what I'm thinking. This is the way that I am. It's a rejection of God. It's a rebellion against God. I pray that you're getting what I'm saying. What would really happen if a man's wife went out and played the harlot? Now, what's really wrong with that? Well, you could talk about sexually transmitted diseases. You could talk about what happens if she gets pregnant. What's going to happen to the child? And you could reason from all of those things, and those are problems. But you know what the real problem is? What would happen if a woman went out and had sexual relationships with somebody else, and if there was no sexually transmitted disease, if there was no pregnancy that came up, would that mean that because the consequences weren't there, that the husband would just say, well, you didn't get pregnant, you didn't get any sexually transmitted diseases, so it's okay? Well, of course not. The real problem is that she broke her covenant with the husband. Now, if you have these other consequences, such as pregnancy or sexually transmitted diseases come, well, then that adds to the problem. But the problem exists if she doesn't get pregnant. If no other consequences come, she broke her covenant with her husband. And you know what? The husband would be grieved and would have to deal with that. Well, it's the same thing with God. Whether you get caught, whether you get any consequences in the natural, whether the police ever find out about it, whether you could get by with it or not is not the issue. The issue is God knows, and you aren't trusting God, and you aren't looking at God. See, that's what the Lord was telling David. 
He didn't say, David, look what you did to Bathsheba. Look what you did to Uriah. Look what this is going to cost you in the nation. Look how my name, all of these things. Instead, he says, how could you have despised me? It's amazing how people miss this. You know, with my own children, I remember when I first let them start taking the car to be gone on a date or to do something. You'd tell them to be in at 11 o'clock. And I remember that if I told them 11 o'clock, they'd be in at 11.10, 11.15 or whatever. And then when they come in, I get to talking to them, why are you late? And they say, it's only five minutes. It's only 10 minutes. What's going to happen? And, you know, I'm just like most parents. I don't always communicate things right. I remember telling my kids and saying, well, it's late at night. What would have happened if you'd have had a flat? What would have happened if you'd have run out of gas? What would have happened if something, you know, you could get stuck. That's when all the weirdos are out at night. Man, this is dangerous. You could have been hurt. Something could have happened. And you know what? The kid listens to that, and what they're thinking is consequences. And they just don't believe that they're going to run out of gas, that they're going to have a flat. And they don't. They look at the consequences, and they think, what is the big deal between 11.15 and 11 o'clock? And they just don't understand. But you know what really is the issue? I'm not sure that I ever made this clear to my kids. It took me a while to figure it out myself. But you know what's really the issue coming in at 11.10 instead of 11 o'clock? It's not those 10 minutes. Then in 10 minutes, you know, the whole world turns bad and you got to get in before your car turns back into a pumpkin, you know. And it's not that kind of thing at all. You know what the real issue is? It's the fact that, hey, I don't owe you It is not a God-given right that you drive the family car and then I let you stay out at night. It's a privilege. And you know what? I've trusted you. And I've extended grace to you and I've trusted you. And you didn't honor my trust. You've offended me because you know what? You didn't honor me. If I say 11 o'clock, you're going to push it to 11.10 or 11.15. The real issue here isn't just all the physical things, even though they exist. The real issue is that I've trusted you and you've broken my trust. How could you have done this to me? And see, that's what kids don't get lots of times. They just think, well, what's the difference between 11 o'clock and 11.10? That's not the big deal. The big deal is that you were trusted and you can't be trusted. You've proven that you can't honor that trust. You've proven that you don't really respect your parents that you're going to do what you want to do. And if they say 11, you're going to push it 10 or 15 minutes or whatever. See, that's the way it is with God. This is what's really wrong with sin. The reason that dope is wrong, you could argue that it could damage your brain, it could damage your body, it's going to cost you money, it'll cost you your job, it'll get you shame, you'll be rejected. You could argue all those things. But you know what the real root of dope, alcoholism, any of these kind of things is? It means that you're miserable and that you're looking for an escape, and you're willing to waste money, you're willing to put your health on the line. In other words, you're saying, I am so miserable that I'm willing to run all of these risks just for these few moments of being high and numb and euphoric to where I don't feel my problems. In other words, you are turning to a pill or to a bottle to alleviate your problems instead of turning to God. You're using a pill or a bottle as a substitute for God. And that's what's offensive to God. It's not just the health risk. It's not just the fact that you, when you're drunk, could damage a car, could kill somebody else. Even those things are factors. The real root of the cause is that, you know what, you aren't letting God meet your needs. You're getting your needs men out of a bottle. And that's what grieves God. 
When you begin to look at it this way, then you know what? It wouldn't matter if another person was around. It wouldn't matter if you could get by with sin. It doesn't matter about consequences. You have a standard on the inside of you that will hold you in any circumstance because it's a personal deal about you and God. You know, when it came to Joseph, he was um, taken into slavery and sold to Potiphar, and he was a a slave in Potiphar's house. But because he was faithful to God, God gave him favor, and he began to be promoted. And Potiphar's wife came and tried to entice Joseph into committing adultery with her. This is in the 39th chapter of Genesis. And she pressed him, but he wouldn't do it. And finally, one day, he just says, How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, if you were looking at it only from a situational ethics type deal, a relative morality thing. He could have looked at it and he says, man, I'm a slave. I was forsaken. I was sold into slavery. God hasn't done me any good. And he could have been bitter and he could have said, well, I'll just indulge myself. He could have thought about it only from the standpoint of, can I get caught? Well, no, he couldn't have because the wife of Potiphar certainly wasn't going to tell on him because it would have been her own head on the line. And so, you know what, he was guaranteed that he could have gotten by with it. If he was just looking at it from a standpoint of, am I going to get caught? Is this going to cost me? Well, then he probably would have indulged himself. But see, he says, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, he knew it was a sin against Potiphar, but the main thing was it was against God. See, this same logic is what kept me pure in Vietnam while most of the other people I knew in Vietnam just lived like animals. I was in a company of 200 people, and they had about once every six weeks, they had what they called stand-down, and they would bring the troops out of the front lines and bring them back to the rear area, and they would give you all of the booze and all of the sex that you could have. They would bring in uh, Filipino showgirls who were nothing but glorified prostitutes, and after the show... They just gave you all these bunkers, and you could have all the sex that you wanted. And out of 200 people in my company, I'm the only one whom I'm aware of that didn't participate in that. And I can tell you, there was one of the guys was a man that I grew up with at home. We went to the same church together, and he wasn't a you know a bad kid or anything like that, but. I know the logic. I talked to him, and basically he says, you know, I'm probably going to get killed next week anyway. What's it matter? Or he would say things like, man, I'm on the other side of the world in Vietnam. These are prostitutes. Nobody will ever know what I've done. And see, because they just felt like everybody's doing it, uh, there's going to be no consequences. Who can find out about it? I could get killed anyway, so what does it matter? Because of those things, Those people, the vast majority of them, did things that they wouldn't have done if they were back here in the United States. But you know what? I was kept from doing that because I saw it as it didn't matter whether anybody else ever knew what I did or not. God was there, and I had a personal relationship with God, and I could not sin against God that way. Man, that is a powerful truth. I just pray that you're getting this. This is the way that God reproved David. He says, David, how could you have done these things and have despised me? And because of that, this brought David back. God didn't rebuke him based on just consequences. It was all about David. At one time, you love me. 
I think the New Testament terminology for this, according to Revelations chapter 2, he would have been saying, David, you've left your first love. At one time, you used to love me, and I used to satisfy you, and I gave you all of these things, but now you've moved away from me, and you're satisfying your desires through lust instead of through love. That's the reasoning that God was using. And you know what? David got the message. Over here in Psalms chapter 51, I've already used this verse, but it's appropriate and needs to be used again. Psalms chapter 51, where David repented of his sin with Bathsheba. Here's what he said in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Man, notice he says against you and you only have I sinned. You know, in one sense, that's not accurate. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He caused a lot of trouble with a lot of people. He brought this sin on down into his own family. He had lust, incest, murder in his children, and I believe he's the one that opened the door to it. You know, you could talk about lots of consequences that his sin caused, but really those were side issues. The main thing, the heart of the issue is exactly like he states it right here against you, and you only have I sinned. And that's what brought him back into the proper relationship with God. Let me pause for just a moment and show you some of the physical consequences of David's sin. I'm not saying that they don't exist. I'm just saying that the bottom line and the way that God reproved David, the root of the sin was the fact that he wasn't God-dependent anymore. He wasn't seeking God. But there were other consequences. For instance, David began to start letting this sexual impurity flow through him. I believe it had access through him into his entire family. Amnon, his son, his firstborn son, wound up lusting after his sister Tamar, and he raped her. And because of this, then Absalom, the third oldest son of David, was incensed at Amnon. It took him four years, but eventually he brought vengeance upon Amnon and killed Amnon. So David opened up a door that allowed this sexual sin to enter into his own children, and then because of that, murder came in. Absalom was in self-imposed exile for three years because he was afraid of what his father David would do. After three years, he was brought back, but David still wouldn't talk to him for another two years. And so Absalom got upset, finally got an audience with the king. The king kissed him, hugged him, but apparently there wasn't total reconciliation. There isn't any account of, uh, you know, a lot of communication in this. This is recorded in the 14th chapter of Second Samuel. And then it says, after he had met with David, and David hugged him and kissed him, but, you know, he just didn't uh, respond the way that Absalom wanted. It says in chapter 15, verse 1, it came to pass after this. After what? After this meeting with his father, five years after he had killed his brother Amnon, after this, Absalom began a civil war. And it took a number of years, but uh, David allowed this treason to go on. Finally, Absalom tried to kill 
David and take the kingdom and caused a civil war. And there was thousands and thousands of people that died. Also during this period of time, uh, David had some of his concubines that he left in Jerusalem to guard his house. They stayed there and Absalom went in and had sexual relationships with his father's concubines in the sight of all of the people. So again, I'm telling you what the results of David's sins are. You know what? It opened up his son to lust. It opened up, therefore, one of his daughters to rape. It opened up one of his sons to murder. It caused civil war. It caused his own wives to be defiled in the sight of all of these people. And on and on you could go. Look at this. Here's where uh, Ahithophel gave counsel to Absalom. And told Absalom that he should go in and take his father's wives and commit adultery with them, these concubines. Now, um, I will have to say that back during this period of time, when one king took over the kingdom from another, it was customary for him to take the wives of the previous king and have sexual relationships with them. The logic behind this was that if the previous king could have done anything about it, he would have. He would have never let his wives be defiled. So it was a sign that the previous king was out, the new king was in, or he would have stopped this. And so it was kind of symbolic of showing that the previous king is totally impotent. I've taken the kingdom, and here I can prove it by having relationships with the previous king's wives. So that was a practice of the day, and I believe that it had that benefit. But you know what else this shows? I mean, when it hit the fell, it says that his counsel was just like a person was inquiring of God. He never missed it. He was always right. And he counseled Absalom to take his father's wives and commit adultery with them. You know, surely you could have done something that would have solidified the people behind you and would have shown that there was no chance of reconciliation. Man, this is a fight to the death. We are in this for the long haul. Surely you could have done that some other way. Why would Ohithophel counsel something like that? Well, you know, here is a uh, here's a something that you might miss unless you really study the word and find this. But in Second Samuel chapter twenty three, it says that Ahithophel was the father of Eliam. This is Second Samuel twenty three thirty four. It says Eliphalet, the son of, uh, I can't pronounce all of these names, and he was the son of another guy. And then it says, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. Uh, and I can't pronounce the rest of that. But anyway, here it says in Second Samuel twenty-three thirty-four that Eliam was the son of Ahithophel. Now look at Second Samuel chapter 11, where it describes the adultery with Bathsheba. It says that he sent and inquired after the woman. This is Second Samuel 11.3. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? If you put these two scriptures together, it says that Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam. And then Second Samuel 23.34 says that Eliam was the son of Ahithophel. So what this means is that Ahithophel, this man who told Absalom, Go in and take David's wives and commit adultery, defile them in the sight of all of the nation of Israel. You know what I believe part of his motivation for that counsel was? This means Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. 
And I believe that from the very day that he saw his granddaughter defiled by David and his grandson taken and killed by David, that Ahithophel had been nurturing bitterness, unforgiveness, and it had been brooding for years and years and years. And he was just waiting for an opportunity to get even with David. So you know what? You could say that David's sin affected Ahithophel. You could talk about how that it had just totally polluted his entire life with bitterness. You could talk about how all of these concubines had been defiled and it had destroyed their life. You could talk about how it cost Absalom bitterness and anger and hatred towards his father and it cost Absalom his life. You could talk about how it cost Tamar her virginity because of David's sin. It cost Amnon. It let lust into his life. And then the thousands of people that died in the civil war that Absalom brought. All of those are consequences of David's sin. Just because I'm saying that the root of his sin was personal rebellion towards God, and that's what really is at the heart of all sin. I'm not saying that sin doesn't have consequences. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. You don't want to sin, even from just the circumstance, the consequence level. But even beyond that, something that will work at all times is you need to recognize that sin is a transgression against God. It's not trusting God. You aren't believing on God. If you steal, it doesn't matter whether the people you steal from can afford it, if they're rich people and have insurance. It's the fact that you aren't getting your needs met in a godly way from God. Instead, you're doing it in your way. You are imposing your wisdom above God's wisdom. It doesn't matter if you can go out and commit adultery in a way that you can guarantee there's no sexually transmitted diseases, that you'll never get pregnant, that nobody will ever find out. That's not the issue. The issue is you would be sinning against God, as Joseph revealed in Genesis chapter 39. Man, this is powerful. And if you get this, it will make a total, total difference in your level of integrity. You'll get to where you operate in integrity, whether anybody's watching whether anybody's checking up on you, whether you're being held accountable or not. And sad to say, most people just don't live a life that way. You know, I actually read a thing in Reader's Digest about where they put some money in a wallet and they put in a name and address, all of the information that was needed to be able to return the wallet to its rightful owner. They put it out on the sidewalk and then they watched to see what people could do. And you know that less than 50% of the people turn the wallet with the money back in. I think it was somewhere around 40% of the people actually operated in integrity and turned the wallet back in. The others just took it. And after they took it, the people from Reader's Digest stopped them and quizzed them, kind of asked a survey about why didn't you turn it in. And basically the answers were, if I'd have known anybody was watching, I would have. In other words, situational morality, situational ethics. Am I going to be caught? Is there going to be consequences? And it's because they aren't God conscious. They're man conscious. I tell you what, a person who is only doing what's right because it's expected of them, because they are held accountable, that person's heart isn't right with God. They don't have a heart after God. True morality, true integrity comes down to it doesn't matter whether people see or not. As it says over in Ephesians chapter 6, I believe also Colossians chapter 4, somewhere around there, it says, 
whatever you do, do heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. In other words, it doesn't matter whether your employer knows that you are giving an extra five minutes, that you cut your break short so that you could do this. It doesn't matter whether you ever get rewarded from people or not. You need to boil everything down to that you are doing it as to the Lord and not unto men. See, this is what kept me pure in Vietnam is because I had a personal relationship with God, and it didn't matter if my family or if anybody that I counted on knew what I was doing or not doing or not. God knew. And my personal relationship with God caused me to have a level of integrity that most of the people over there didn't have. Boy, this is a powerful truth. These are things that we can learn from David. That you know what? There were reasons why he sinned. It was because he quit having this intimacy with God. It quit being personal relationship. He was so prosperous that he didn't have to seek God the way that he did. And because of that... He turned off his engines. He began to coast, and without realizing it, he started sinking at that exact moment. And it was just a matter of time until some form of sin manifested. And so he committed adultery, even murder, to cover up his adultery. And then he showed a harsh judgment, and because of that, God gave him the same judgment that he meted out. Now, in the New Testament, praise God, we've had our judgment placed upon Jesus. And so even though we've done all of these terrible things, It's a little different for us than it was with David because we have a better covenant. David talked about it in Psalms 34. He says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. David had his sin imputed unto him, but we live in a covenant where our sin has been imputed to Jesus and we aren't going to have to suffer and punish. But we still can learn from this that even though Jesus has borne our punishment, We need to recognize that whether people can hold us accountable or not, that we still, it's a transgression against God. Yes, it's been borne by Jesus, but we ought to abhor sin. We ought to walk in integrity knowing that, man, it cost our Savior his life. He suffered every time you commit a sin. Jesus suffered that sin. And I don't want to add to what Jesus has already borne. I don't want to do that. I want to live a life that will glorify God. I tell you, these are things that we can learn from David. Even though our sin has been placed on Jesus, David suffered consequences of his sin. He was totally forgiven. The child died that was born to him in Bathsheba. You can read that in the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel. And David interceded thinking maybe God would have mercy. But you know what? David had shown no mercy. He got no mercy. That child died. But then... After this transgression was done, you can still see the forgiveness, the grace of God in David's life because he went in and had sexual relationships again with Bathsheba, this time as his lawful wife. She wasn't the wife of someone else. And even though this whole relationship with Bathsheba was conceived in total lust and sin, now that it was over and now that it was repented of and a child had even died of that union, now God blessed that union. And David called the son that was born to Bathsheba, the second son who lived, David called him Solomon. But God sent Nathan the prophet and renamed him and called him Jedidiah, which meant beloved of God. God put his stamp of approval upon that marriage. Boy, that has a lesson for us too. I mean, a lot of people that they got married totally out of the will of God. It was totally ungodly, but yet they find themselves in that marriage. 
What should they do now that they've turned their life over to God? Should they divorce and cause a break and go find someone else and complicate the thing? Well, basically, here's a scriptural precedent that if you get born again in a totally ungodly relationship, you know what? You, through your repentance, become a new person. God sanctifies you. He can make that relationship that was conceived in sin turn out to be a godly thing, even as David's relationship with Bathsheba was, and Solomon was chosen to be the next king. I tell you, we see the grace of God all through the life of David. I wish I had time to go through other things. There's so much more in the life of David. But these four tapes have hit some of the milestones, some of the major points in David's life. And I tell you, there's a lot of things that we can learn through this. And if we're smart, we'll learn it at David's expense and not have to learn it through our own hard knocks. Praise God. I just believe that God is going to prosper you and bless you with these truths and uh, cause you to walk like David, a man after God's own heart.